This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. And I'm Scott. Hi, I'm Evan. I'm Trish. I'm Alec. And we're going to talk about uh, Worldcon 2020 panels, mostly, I hope. <laughs> I heard they had some. They had I, some I, panels, I, yeah. I've seen one of them, or it was in a related one, the one with Paul. And then I, I heard a lot of stuff about other panels or speeches and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, you wanted to talk about all the cool things that happened at Worldcon. <laughs> <laughs> well, the cool things that happen to work on should we should we talk about the the Hugos shortly if, in a quick manner, if you like, sure, because um, that's what Twitter's all a buzz about. They sure are. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. so so what happened at the uh, Hugos that that people are unhappy with is um, George R. R. Martin talked a lot about himself and history, and uh, mentioned John W. Campbell a few times. And so did Robert Silverberg, um, which, uh, yeah, people were, were extremely upset about the, the whole tone of the thing, I guess. Would you agree with that, Paul, or anybody who was there? It was or like, yeah, in, in the good old days, this is what we did. And, th- I mean, it was presented as the one true way of science fiction, and that really doesn't fly and that turned a lot of people off mm-hmm. i mean even above and beyond the, the the problems people have with campbell and silverberg lately personally the whole this is what science fiction is is a very as at, at most charitable nicest way to put it is is a it is a vastly incomplete story of science fiction i will note that he talked the ceremony was originally supposed to be two hours it turned out to be three and a half hours, and two hours of that was him telling anecdotes about him at various world cons in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was definitely at a few of those. And <laughs> 60s. Yeah. That's for sure. And, and you know, I will say I love these stories. You know, I'm just like a, as a historian, as like a, someone who, you know, has followed this stuff for a long time. And if it had been a panel you know, with Silverberg and Martin, I would have been all over it. I would have been taking right. notes. Mm-hmm. But uh, it just reflects like a real miscalculation about what that event was about. And, and I, I would have yeah. been pretty pissed off if I'd been one of the finalists. Yeah, the, you know, and the, you know, you wrote a book about uh, John W. Campbell. Um, I did. Which is fantastic. So the, you know, so both Silverberg, um, you know what, I'm, I've got a lot of thoughts here, but um, so... George R. R. Martin talked about John W. Campbell right before giving the Astounding Award, which was renamed because of who got it last year and her speech, and which later won another Hugo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is going to win was, a it was Hugo like, next you know, year, by underlining the way. it or so whatever. <laughs> so, uh, but George R. R. Martin, you know, talked about John W. Campbell, and then so did Robert Silverberg. So there was a there was a panel. In which um, it was just uh, George R. R. Martin and Robert Silverberg, and I went to that one. That was a couple days earlier, and it was it was interesting. And they were talking about that stuff. But one of the things that Robert Silverberg said is he was at a convention, and this was late in John W. Campbell's life. He was alone 
uh, with a bottle of something at the bar, you know, drinking. And Silverberg went over to him and sat down next to him and they shared a drink. And Campbell said, why don't you send me stories anymore? And Silverberg said that he told John W. Campbell that he wasn't comfortable with him anymore. Is that fit what you know of, of that relationship at all, Alec? Uh, yeah, I mean that story is in, in the book. Okay, good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Silverberg told me that story. Um, I mean, in the version I, I know, uh, Campbell was actually drinking alone in his room uh, mm-hmm. with a bottle of scotch, okay. mm-hmm. which is you know a very sad image. Um, and yeah, I mean this this is at a point when um, he was uh, suffering from the sense that the genre had moved past him, and mm-hmm. not just Silverberg. You know, he was talking about a lot of writers who he had developed and who he sort of saw as his circle, uh, who were no longer submitting stories to him. Um, and he was very uh, conscious of this. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I think talking about the Campbell, Campbell's legacy, you know, even during his lifetime, he was controversial. Um, and, the, the, you know, there's a sense in which we are kind of rediscovering things as a community that would have been common knowledge and, and certainly open, you know, subjects of discussion, you know, circa 1968, 69. Yeah. yeah and it's worth noting that uh, earlier in the con, too, they had Retro Hugo Awards and John W. Campbell actually won Best Editor. Which um, really for 1945 was 1945 the year. 1945 was the year. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know it's a difficult legacy because um, you know you have all these difficulties, but for him not to be recognized as the the person that was driving the train <laughs> in 1945 seems like it would be incorrect history. There's almost no magazines other than what the Asimovs, Weird Tales. Alec, am I wrong in thinking there's like maybe four magazines? Well, there were a lot of minor magazines. 45? You know, here, here's the thing, right? There are always more pulp magazines than we tend to talk about because they've been mostly forgotten. Um, if, you were, if you were like a fairly ambitious writer who wanted to write hard science fiction or what we think of that as hard science fiction today for adult readers, um, Astounding really was your best uh, market. And, you know, there were always uh, magazines that... Uh, often had wider circulations that were aimed at younger readers. Um, and so, you know, Astounding very rarely had the highest circulation, but as far as prestige went, and as far as being a magnet to draw, you know, sort of the the most um, forward-looking writers in the field, you know, it's certainly true. And it's not until 1950 that you see um, the fantasy and science fiction and Galaxy really mounting a challenge to Campbell's um, monopoly over the top talent. Yeah, so um, the Planet Stories is around. There are some other magazines out there, but uh, 1945 is not like peak 1952 or 51, where there's f- maybe 40 different SF magazines. So the co- the competition is less. Fe- uh, I, I I I just think like one of the things that really bizarred me out was that uh, Lovecraft got uh, along with Derelith in 1945 an award. Which is like that's not the right year for any of that stuff. I mean, I guess Ark that was for body of work. Yeah, that but was why like best for forty five? Ark Arkham House is uh, it is a thing then, but uh, you know it wasn't a. It, it was like just a weird. Yeah, because it was for series. Well, I think the rule on the best series Hugo is that there has to be a volume of the series published that year. 
Right. Um, is that right, yes. Paul? So, yeah, so something must have been published in 1945 in in that uh, mythos, right? Arkham House would have put out something, but mm-hmm. again, like uh, the Cthulhu mythos isn't really a series, except the way August Derelith puts it together. So, okay, that's a that's an award for August Derelith's collaborations with it. Um, but the other the other ones like that were nominated for that were. Where um, people, you know, stuff almost nobody. The hero pulps mostly, right? They were, Doc, Doc Savage, The Shadow, that sort of thing. I don't, maybe was, was there an E.E. E. Doc Smith or something in there? I, I can't remember. I don't know. Retro Retro Hugo's seem to me like a kind of as. Yeah, I'm. I'm guessing kind of, we may have seen the last one. Although, aren't, no, aren't they teed up to do it next year? No, not not next year. Okay. Because because it, because it duplicates a year that's already been given. So I believe it's I believe it's twenty twenty two will be the next potential yeah. retro Hugo. I year. would guess that there's going to be a movement to stop doing that. Um, I mean, it's up. It's it's basically up to that world gun whether or not they want to give them out, so they can they yeah, can choose yeah. or not to as they like. I personally, I I mean, filling in the fifties where we didn't have world cons and retro and hugos as a result i felt that fine but going back to the 40s before there were actually even hugos and giving out hugos <laughs> i'm much less enthused because the hugos hadn't even been invented yet yeah and it's a tough thing i mean are you voting are you voting for things that you like today or you're voting for things <laughs> that you think were the best then you know yeah it's like well it's, you know how am i supposed to vote here like i, I don't think know. i think there is value though for a lot of readers looking at the ballots mm-hmm. uh you know yeah. I, I think i mean i'm not i'm not i can't say that every winner is the one who is most deserving but if you look at you know the stories that were up this year i think like Catherine moore's uh, no woman born was one of the finalists which is a fantastic story that i think mm-hmm. people yes. should, should know more about you know i mean i think if you are curious about this period the the finalists tend to have, tend to have some pretty good stories that a lot of fans haven't encountered before and so i think on that level it it has value yeah and uh reintroducing everybody to lee brackett you know fantastic Mm -hmm. you know that that she existed and 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 she was yeah she was one of the top writers at the time no question And clifford simak i mean yeah i'm sad that desertion i mean i'm sad the desertion did not win because and city did but desertion didn't i think desertion is a better story than sitting personally but that's my opinion yeah but that's interesting. So, um, and, and also, I guess we should say that uh, there was a lot that went wrong at the Hugos. Um, not just George R. R. Martin; <laughs> it was technically bad. Um, uh, it, it was, yeah, it was just wasn't terrific at all. You know, th- those poor guys, and they're they're getting you know uh, uh, the the lack of uh, New Zealand author. Uh, uh, there should have been a spotlight. At least somewhere in that ceremony, you know, hey, we're in New Zealand. <laughs> you know what I mean? The I, New I mean, Zealand I, Awards, uh, called the Sir Julius Vogel Awards, mm-hmm. uh, were dropped at the end of the Retro Hugo ceremony oh, uh, two days mm-hmm. earlier. And yeah. that is just really an awful shame. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people at the con had no idea that that was going on and yeah. it turns out I was reading today that they had pre- that all Hugo uh, uh sorry all Worldcon members were eligible to vote on the SJV New Zealand awards and they the people organizing that had prepared a packet 
and the Worldcon organizers just never sent it out to the oh, membership. Yeah, so nobody knew other, about it. Yeah, I heard that the other day from one of my New Zealand friends. Yeah, and I was like, "What? Are you kidding?" I yeah. Was, I, so I, I, I this great this con at New Zealand, this great opportunity to shine a light on New Zealand writers. Um, yeah, yeah. Just really bypassed it. You know, it's it's a shame. I, I mean, looking at I mean, taking that and looking at the how they did the the Hugo ceremony, it felt aside from that base, which is a very nice Hugo base. I wish I would have, I, I will be honest. I wish I had won a Hugo because that base is absolutely all beautiful. I mean, the rocket's fine, but that base, oh, that base aside from that, you really couldn't tell this was taking place in New Zealand. I mean, because he kept c- cutting back to Martin in Santa Fe. It felt like it was the George R. R. Martin presents the Hugos in New Mexico show rather than a show from New Zealand. Yeah, and I got to tell you, I'm I'm really sympathetic this morning to the volunteers, um, because you know we can't forget that Worldcon is 100% volunteer driven. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody who works there is a volunteer. Nobody's making money. Um, I've been on convention staffs, um, and I feel really bad for them. Uh, you know, because Worldcon is a fan convention. I, I think that that's being lost too, and and Alec may be able to help me out here too. But um, on on that talk between George R. R. Martin and uh, Robert Silverberg, George R. R. Martin said, and this is mm-hmm. well well before the Hugo Awards, he said, "WorldCon is a party put on by fans that we get to attend," and that's how he looks at it. He's there well, every year. He has a great right. love for this convention, but for him, this right. is a party. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like Martin obviously has been going to Worldcon for decades, yeah, and since his yeah. view of that convention is you know it was shaped early on before he became in some ways the most recognizable novelist in America. And you know I think you know for his point of view it might still be he is a fan running an event an awards ceremony for other fans, but in practice, you know the gravitational field there has shifted dramatically so that you know he. You know, he he is no longer just a fan. He he is he is the leading, in some ways, like representative of that field to popular culture right now, and um, his his sort of fan memories carry on. You know, they 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 assume like a additional weight. Uh, you know, as a result, and I think no one quite understood how that would play, um, in 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 real time on this uh, on this live stream. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it sort of, as you said, you know, it ended up with George dominating the event, which should have been about the finalists Agreed. and the winners. Mm-hmm. And and um, because he spent a lot of time talking about the past as opposed to the present or the future of the genre. Um, and because, like, the, the racial and, you know, other makeup of, you know, that uh, dynamic is very clear, it created this really unfortunate effect um, to, I would say, the majority of people that tuned in. Yeah. So it was a jarring discontinuity between George and Bob Silverberg talking and the uh, the winners who were, in general, um, uh, uh, more, more female, more uh, diverse culturally and, and uh, nationality-wise, and also um, uh, skewing a lot younger in general. Um, not that older people can't write great science fiction and be connected to the trends and everything, but, uh, George and, and Bob obviously 
we're looking back to the great old days where when they were up and coming and having a great time and the really the disrespect you know the failure to learn how to pronounce many people's names and even the name of Faya magazine mm. um it, it was i think disrespectful not maybe not deliberately <laughs> yeah it, but, it might not uh, have been deliberately but the the odd thing is that a lot of those things were recorded you know yes. so it's not i mean somebody could have watched it and said uh you know could we redo this because there's something you know, and then not only that, but I understand it all. Well, Paul could tell you um, all the finalists um, uh, apparently sent in per name pronunciations. But yep, we, I'm assuming we they did we not get asked. to George R. R. Martin because if he had him in front of him and did that, then that's a that's a big problem. But I'm I'm assuming it didn't get that far. Well, have we seen? Um, so so he, George did reply um, on file seven seven zero. He there was a, a thread about this, and he says that he did not. He he receives some uh, phonetic pronunciations, but not not all of them. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't suspect that he would want to do that on purpose. But seems to me this is a problem. There's seems to be a problem with just uh, words in general. With you know, if you if you I stopped watching them a while ago. I don't know, ten years ago, whatever. The uh, Academy Awards. Th- they really want you know to get to the ceremony stuff. Like basically the presentations, but that's kind of boring for the audience. So they have to have the celebrities do this sort of thing. <laughs> it seems like it's inherently a problem. I've only witnessed one of these in person. That was the one back mm-hmm. in 2006, was it, Scott? Yeah. Um, uh, and and it was the same thing. I mean, Harlan Ellison and presenting Connie Willis awards, and it, it was a lot of standing around, um, waiting for people to deliver their stuff. So it. Yeah, but the fact is in. In this digital thing, you didn't need a lot of lag time for people to shuffle onto and off the stage. You didn't have to have all of that introductory and explanatory. It it should have been been smoother and easier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the kind of like the the subtext that we should bring up here is that the Hugos are often really tedious, um, Mm -hmm. even if you're their person. Um, And I say this, I've been to maybe three or four at this point. And, uh, you know, it's like, I mean, I can't speak for everyone. And, and George, in his comments, said that he actually enjoys ceremonies where the presenter kind of draws out suspense and, you know, kind of <laughs> plays for time a little bit. And honestly, I just want to hear the speeches. I mean, I, I yeah, want to see yeah. the winners. And, and right. to me, that is the high point. When I'm watching the Oscars, this is true. You know, any kind of a ceremony, you know, the, the interstitial stuff, to me, is not the point. Yeah, and, me and I too. Think, um, me too. You know, it was, and this is true even when you're there in person in a big room you know, an auditorium with a lot of other people, it's, it's inherently a bit more interesting. Right. You know, on online, it just, all this dead air, and it was this, like, to me, again, like a really inexplicable miscalculation about what people would want to sit through in, like, a virtual ceremony. Mm-hmm. You, you want to draw people in so you get a big name, and then the big name <laughs> it has a big name for a reason. So it, it's inherently contradictory. Here's what I would focus on uh, for a second. Like, uh, that list of Hugo's retro Hugo's includes best fanzines, and most of those fanzines have been buried in people's, uh, you know, libraries if they have them. Nobody's seen these things. Now they're all available, right? That's that's what's so cool is every single one of the nominated fanzines for 1945 is available over on DIY History, uh, the University of was it. Uh, Iowa, 
has like uh, the entire Hevelin collection. And it's being scanned. It's beautiful. It's amazing for research. That's awesome, right? <laughs> and that's why I want the list is like, oh, there's uh, something I've never heard of that could be cool. I want to have the list handy. You know, the best related work uh, winner, uh, Lee Brackett's uh, The Science Fiction Field, which is in Writer's Digest, July 1945. One of the guys I follow on Twitter, he said, oh, I didn't know that that had been nominated. Had I did, I could have shared it with everybody. Here's my scan. Right. Mm. That's the cool part is is actually getting like I don't care about awards at all. I only care about like, here's a really cool book, Jesse. Check it out. <laughs> You're going to love this essay. It's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. what I I'm really excited about. And if I have a list of of things that were nominated, uh, I can say, well, you know, whoever whoever won the election, whether it be Eugene V. Debs or uh, Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> um, at least I get to see a list of the candidates. Right. And uh, I wouldn't have voted for one of those guys because one of them was real evil and the other one was not real evil. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um uh, you know, uh, that's to me the only real value there is like getting that list, and and you know maybe looking at the and saying why did this you know looking at the list of of uh, things best series uh, Jules de Grandin uh, I still have yet find any reason to read any of those. Everybody says, well, you know they were they were popular in their time, but I haven't read a single one because I've read a little bit of Seabaring Quinn. It doesn't do anything for me. But Pellucidar, that's that's way better than August Derleth's contributions to, you know, the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, Evan, we haven't heard much from you. I know you again didn't attend. Um, this is a really funny thing, right? Being in the room attending, uh, I got a lot a lot of information through Scott. Where were you all online? Because you're in China. It's behind the Great Firewall. What's going on with you? And your reaction to all this? I was just uh, following the Twitter afterwards. So mostly I want to hear what the people who were there had to say about it. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of interesting things that were were brought up in, in the Twitter conversations. Um, and, like, I mean, the audience for younger writers, I think that was the thing I was, like, thinking about most recently. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of conversation about how younger writers aren't getting the attention and that's a, the kind of the, the whole issue with the presentation, right? That this is supposed to be about the, the, the new writers. And, you know, I don't buy many new science fiction books, uh, mostly because I can't afford to, right? Mm-hmm. And You were at the library yesterday looking for... Yeah, uh, I was at the library and I was looking, I was actually looking for uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Kuang's uh, uh, Copy War. I thought they might have it because it is a, a Chinese library. They have a decent English uh, collection. But I didn't expect much. I, I was able to get a few things. I got uh, Ruff's Lovecraft Country. I got a Kim Stanley Robinson novel. Shane um, Mavele is the city in the city. Things I've wanted to read for a while. But these newer, younger writers, they're not there. I don't know how that is at U.S. libraries. I know libraries are sort of being defunded. And I'm lucky in that addition. my county yeah. has a really great library. Uh, they had three of the novels um, in, that were nominated and several of the uh, novellas. Um, and uh, uh, my about 10 years ago, there was a, a referendum about um, 
that added actually a tiny tax increase to help fund the library. But I am absolutely in the minority in that regard. <laughs> there are so yeah. many libraries that have had fund cuts um, in uh, in the U.S. and in Britain, I know, and I don't know what, what else, but I've certainly heard a lot about that. Yeah, tr- tr- yeah, and so I was playing around with this inflation calculator just actually right before we started. And um, just for a comparison, I, I, I looked at Solar Lottery, which was published as an ace double. So you got two books. It was, a, it was a cheap paperback, of course. But in 1955, it cost 35 cents, right? So in today's dollar, that's about 350. Um, mm. Much more we affordable. Kind, like the, the average worker hasn't got a raise nope. in real wages since the 1970s in the U.S. And younger readers who would want to buy this stuff, it's even worse, right? For millennials and Zoomers, their incomes are, are much below average. Um, and yet a paperback is $15 and I'm, I can't afford to buy as many books as I'd like to. And I think for many readers, that's the case. So I think that's gotta be part of the conversation. It, mm. I, I don't know if it's a lack of interest in younger writers. It's, I mean, there must, it's publishers should bear some of the blame for that. That was kind of one of my thoughts about, uh, this part of the conversation about the, visibility of younger writers because I, I do think that's very very important hmm. you know one one of the things you know if we're talking economics one of the things that struck me this year is that um this is before covid maybe it was so it must have been last year but there were two authors that i noticed on twitter that said they, they were starting patreon accounts because they weren't uh, making ends meet mm-hmm. and these were like People that are Robert, Hugo nominated, Robert uh, J. And, Sawyer, right? Well, Sawyer is one of them, but he he's going a different direction. He he wants to go self pub. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, there's one. Uh, I don't even know if I should mention the name. I guess I will. Cameron Hurley. She she yeah. came out and she was doing that. She's got a novel, a Hugo nominated novel, and is not so able to make ends meet. So yeah, I find that I found that astounding. If she, she's had a Patreon for a while because, yeah, she she can't make a living writing science fiction novels in this day and age. Which and is she, and she, it's not like she amazing. writes one novel every five years. She mm-hmm. she's relatively prolific by science fiction standards. Yeah. So that's and disappointing. Successful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So outside economics, uh, who read a memory called Empire, the Hugo winner this year? I, I did. did. How it did was you great. guys like it? It was great. Good. <laughs> it it it. it I really, really enjoyed the world building and what and the themes and the and the setting and ha- and and the language, the beautiful language and the thoughts about how language and empire and culture can affect somebody coming into that from the outside and change them without even them wanting to or necessarily intending them for to do so. It, it's a really interesting thinky stuff. I mean, I've, I've seen Arkady for years at a local convention. She comes here every year. She didn't come this year because, you know, we didn't have a convention. So she'd been talking about and writing short stories and talking about these sorts of things at the panels for these conventions for years. So I was finally glad when she said, Oh, I have a novel. And (laughs) when it came out, it's almost like it's distilling the thoughts she's had and the things she's talked about all this time into a book. That's great. Plus, Plus, it was just fun to read. It, you know, it's not a dense, intimidating 
book. It's it's great. It's a murder mystery. It's space opera. It's um, there's a lot of humor in it. Um, and uh, yeah, it had my vote for uh, best novel, uh, my number one vote. Um, although the other books were all good, and I wouldn't have been sad, you know, to see any of the others win. But this was my favorite by far. Oh, that's great. That's good. Um, you know, and I love that Paul mentioned local con. I go to a local con every year, and um, I'm in Utah. All the Utah writers show up there, you know, Brandon Sanderson and um, a lot of others. Mary Robinette Koala is usually there. She's not a local Utah author, but right, she flies in. Excuses, she flies in because yeah. of writing excuses, yeah. yeah. So, um, but anyway, that's, it's, it's, it's awesome that you go to that. And, and that's one of the things that I love about the conventions is I get to see people talking on these panels and when they there's a good subject and um they're super interesting i tend to i was like well what have they written and arcadia mm-hmm. martin uh before um before she won she she had really piqued my interest on the panels um sb divya was one that i really enjoyed becky have chambers have you read her runtime yet i have not but i got a i got yeah. the ebook of it um that's good stuff yeah and then um becky chambers Mm-hmm. Um, she's someone I, I read her novella uh, to be taught if fortunate and I loved it I thought it was really good science fiction and I'm ter- like that, told her like novels were even better yeah. So. <laughs> yeah you'll like her trilogy then right so yeah and then um, uh, Suyi Davies, Davies uh, Okungbawa um, he wrote a book called David Mogo God Hunter that, I know it's on my TBR list that's great I, really I ran into him he just kept showing up on these panels that I was interested in and um, I was really, really interested in it. He, he was on a panel on Afrofuturism, which I really enjoyed that panel quite a bit because I, I like uh, Afrofuturism. Um, Who Fears Death is a novel that I like a lot. Um, and this is probably controversial because I don't know if it would be even acceptable today, but Kirin Yaga by um, Mike Resnick. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that that would be appropriation today, um, but but I really enjoyed that novel. I, I I I haven't heard anybody say that it was disrespectful in any way, and maybe I just haven't come across that. But I I liked that novel, um, and I would. It's really Afrofuturism uh, according to the definition that the panel gave, which mm. is really imagining the future of Africa, um, and with that future comes the myth and tradition of the African people, right? Yep. Scott, yeah. have you read Tate Thompson yet? No, I've got, but I, mean, I have, I have Rosewater. Yes. Rosewater? Yes. I have yes. not read it, it yet, but I have it. Read it. Okay. Love it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, but that was one so, of the panels that I was on uh, that I went in that I I really enjoyed that discussion. That was a good one. So, uh, like I said, I, I've only been to one Worldcon. I went to a lot of panels. There was a there was a lot of celebrities, you know, with people, you know, getting signing. I guess that didn't that didn't happen in this case. Like, there's no, you know, Star Trek actor with a big yeah, lineup. There's no, yeah, there's no giants. <laughs> um, yeah, giant, giant signing panel. Yeah, you know, I know Scott yeah. had trouble. He was waiting for David Brin to show up, <laughs> and he, and I said oh he's too gosh. important for him to come to his own. That's funny. Even own when we went in not, 2005, we went. There was the big. Was it the big three? The three Bs three, or whatever. Three Bs in a V. In a v, the killer right. bees? Yeah, the killer Bs. Yeah, and they had. Yeah, so it was Brin Benford Bear. 
and Vinji. And, and that yeah. was when they were writing those three sequels to Asimov books, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, it was shortly after that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a very strange publishing decision, <laughs> yeah, I would say. Yeah, it was. It but, was. but as far as people not coming to panels, I mean, due to technical issues, poor Carl Schrader, who's an awesome writer you should read, couldn't yeah. get into his own reading. I saw that. Was, and I, I went to at least a went, couple of panels with it. him on it. Yeah, um, yeah, I tried to go to yeah. reading and yeah, things went south. You know, another thing that's, that's lost in all the complaints and everything, uh, people seem to have forgotten that these guys – all the bidding process and everything that the New Zealand went through, they have to do this thing virtually. That had to just been heartbreaking. Right. Um, I just can't imagine that. And then to do that and then have all this criticism, um, I'm sure that they were short staffed. I'm sure, you know, again, all these people are volunteers. We got to make sure to thank all these people. Um, but one thing that I would do if I was in charge of Worldcon is I would get them another one immediately. I honestly would. I would say, New Zealand, you know, the next available slot is yours. Well, 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 well to to uh, to uh, to sl- slightly disagree with that. Okay. Running a Worldcon takes a lot of spoons right. and a lot of and energy. They would they have to want, want it. They would have to they, want it. They have to want. They have, have to want it. it. Yeah. They'd have to want it and put on, mm-hmm. and they may not want it because it takes a lot of money and effort I'm to sure, go to Worldcon. I'm positive that this morning they do not want it, <laughs> but maybe next year they would want it. You know because. Oh, so, so so as far as Worldcon, I would like to talk a little bit about Worldcon bids because that was also a thing that happened. This oh, sure, go ahead. Yeah. So, so the the mechanics and the disadvantages and the issues of Worldcon bids came to the fore this Worldcon as well. I mean, they've always been there, but it suddenly people discovered how Worldcon bidding works, and people were not happy by the idea of the two Worldcon bids. For 2022, which is because Worldcon bids come two years in advance, being Chicago, Illinois, and Saudi Arabia. And there was lots of drama on the internet and everywhere, especially at File 770, about, well, this is the way we do this, and the, you, you, don't want, you don't want somebody deciding about these bids and people pushing back, well, you're allowing bids from places where people are not going to feel safe to go. And so there's a lot of a lot of spilled ink over yeah. that. United States is real dangerous right now. Um, yeah, that was people, actually said by a few people. Yeah. Um, so some people yeah. do not feel comfortable coming they said to the United it's, States. It's harder. It would not. Okay. It seems to be a fair fair consensus that Saudi Arabia is not a place that they want to hold a con. I mean, Chicago won by a long way, and because you know Saudi Arabia has a lot of restrictions that people aren't going to want to live under, right? This is this is you know what I'm hearing even from uh, um, people who who have a problem with Chicago. And, uh, right. Well, Saudi problem, Arabia actually yeah. criminalizes LGBTQ yeah, behavior. Yeah, exactly. That's, allow, that's what I'm saying. Um, so that's going to be Jews, a tough place to have a con. But some yeah. of the people that were that were coming from like India or Nigeria or something like that said it's damn hard to get into Chicago for us, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because of uh, you know the 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 um, all the stuff they have to go through to get into the country. Well, and mm-hmm. I understand last year in Dublin, some people from Africa couldn't get to Dublin. Right, the Nigerian delegation. Yeah, uh, just the uh, visa process dragged out until they just weren't able to get there mm-hmm. so you had a question evan well, well just outside of the bid what was the i guess the pro the, argument for, the, for saudi the, arabia 
Well, they made the, a bid, the, right? So the, the argument people that, like saying should be in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. The argument that developed was whether Worldcon should have some kind of minimum standards of uh, of safety for people who would be attending. For instance, no laws against homosexuality, um, and uh, one side was arguing that. Obviously, we need something like this. We, we need to be able to reject some countries out of hand because of their terrible human rights records. And other people were saying, uh, once you do that, that's a slippery slope against uh, arbitrary decisions. And you should trust the voters to vote against unsafe bids. Mm. Now, you'll find this interesting. Well, that's not, a, that's not an, an argument that it should be in Saudi Arabia. I mean... Right. Is there like a growing fan base in the Middle East that needs to be acknowledged? Or are there? It's like, supposed to be Worldcon, right? Yeah, I believe Saudi Arabia had 55 votes, their bid did, and uh, Chicago had several hundred votes. So it wasn't a close decision, but people are worried about the what ifs. Right. So now, Evan, you'll find this interesting. Next year, the Worldcon's in D.C. and there'll be the the bidding for 2023. Now, currently, now there's still time to get in a bid if somebody has lots of money and volunteers. Currently, the two bidders for 2023 are Memphis, Tennessee and Chengdu, China. Is China an acceptable Worldcon destination? That's a that's a thornier problem in Saudi Arabia on a lot of levels. Well, you're not, you're not going to have the degree of, I guess... The concern about criminalization, of right? But LGBT but but from a issues. political standpoint, I mean, I, I there are. Um, it's pretty backward. Saudi, on those issues. Saudi Arabia and Yemen are both, uh, you know, United States are both bombing Yemen. So it's it's like, if you want to start setting moral standards, you you're gonna have to exclude the United States for a lot well, of this. Well, well, that, well and, and and that's yeah, I don't disagree with that. That's a point. Yet that some people have made, like, and but since most of Worldcon's. The people who attend Worldcons year after year are from the United States. That's one of the reasons why this looks pushback. Like, if you start looking at that mirror, the United States for some people is not a great destination, and so there's a, a real pushback against against trying to police bids for minimum anything because mm. the United States might not might not qualify under some uh, under some uh, axes of uh, respectability and safety. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean Cheryl Morgan, for example. Um, who is an LGBTQ per, um, fan in fan and writer in the UK will not come to the United States because she doesn't she doesn't feel safe, uh, and she's had I problems have, trying to get in. She's had problems trying to get. She has problems trying to even get in. So and Peter Watts got his ass kicked at the border, and then they threw him in jail for right. So having his ass kicked at the border, it's it scared the shit out of me. I'm like, yeah. So I, like, I don't want to lie at the border, and I don't want to, you know. Have the shit kicked out of me for looking like I'm sleepy. So, so, the, bid, so the bidding next is year is going to be it's like China versus Tennessee, and people are going to look really askance at this at next year's Worldcon in DC. I'm not sure how this is going to go. Yeah, it's going to be votes for the lesser of evils, and in fact, people can <laughs> no award. <laughs> it yeah, would be well, well, startling yeah. if that happened, but they can right. vote for uh, no award instead of one of those two. Uh, under the rules, if it's no award, if, if if a site gets no awarded, I because I I talked to Kevin Stanley on the internet. If it, if that should happen, then basically the business meeting of the Worldcon decides where Worldcon is. 
that's never happened. But yeah, that yeah, and then really and I guess you'd have the problem again. You know, like you you mentioned about New Zealand, if to, if you were to give them a, a con again, they need to want it, right? Right. So right. who who would want it? Because it's a it's a huge undertaking, you know. It is a huge undertaking. I mean, so, some mm-hmm. of these Worldcon bids going in the future were exciting. I mean, these. I mean, twenty twenty three was also going to be. When when France was going to make a bid, but they had to drop out because of problems in Nice with the venue they wanted. But mm-hmm. twenty twenty four, Glasgow wants a World Con. I'd go to Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just a couple of days ago, um, Brisbane, Australia says we want a bid for twenty twenty five. And I know the people who are running that. And it's like, yeah, I could go <laughs> back to Australia for twenty twenty five. Hell yeah. Well, one of <laughs> one of the points I want to make is one that somebody in New Zealand was making. I I read a lot of what people were talking about. Um, and one of them that was saying how it's, you know, they were so disappointed at how New Zealand authors were not represented at their own con. And, you know, the fact that it was really cool that that was going to be in their country because it's been so long since most of them had been able to, to go to one because it's so expensive to fly right. to North America. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, most of them, the last time they got to go to Worldcon was when it was in Australia. Well, what's interesting to me is that you know it's it's always expensive to go anywhere if you're poor. Um, uh, I've never flown to New Zealand because it's very expensive. And <laughs> oh yeah. And one of the things that is interesting about doing it virtually like this is that expense is nullified. Right, there's no cost for me to tune into a Discord channel. However, there is a cost. There's still the cost of it being, you know, to pay for this convention. You have to sign up to be a member, mm-hmm. right? So you can vote in the award ceremony, but more importantly, to attend all those those panels. Mm-hmm. And that's really silly when you're doing it virtually. The cost is almost zero. Right? There is a cost of, you know coordinating but that's very cheap compared to renting the convention center getting the hotels getting uh, all those volunteers to move all these tables and chairs around and that sort of thing well in this case they did have a fair amount of sunk costs that they had to recover so i really don't see how they could have uh not required uh admission um i know that they late in the game decided to comp finalists for their memberships, but the word that was done late and the word was not gotten out to all of the finalists. Um, so that was poorly done. I do want to say, you know, I, we, we've been Hello? criticizing, uh, New Zealand con, con Zealand, uh, a fair amount. I think they did do an amazing job in a lot of respects. And, you know, I don't like some of the decisions that they made, but, you know, uh-huh. they, they did put a huge amount of work into this. And aside from the Hugo ceremony, I really enjoyed all of the panels that I went to. Um, mm-hmm. Me too. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, there were technical problems, and maybe they should have been fixed beforehand. But, you know, most a lot of it went really smoothly, and I I just I don't think that that should be lost amid the complaints my my point i was i was trying to make is just that if we're going to be locked down for uh, a few more years and or people don't want to cross into uh problematic countries um 
a lot of this sh- stuff should be archived. Like it, it should be available. And even if you want to attend it, um, only after, so you can see a panel that was talked about, it should, it should be available. I don't think it is. It's available yeah, no, I mean, to been... members to, to visit, uh, archives for until August nine. And I heard that some of the panels will eventually be placed in an online archive, I think at the university of Toronto, um, uh, for anyone to look at, but that's there's certainly going to be a delay, quite a delay before. Well, that I don't happens. mind the delay. I I I mind that it's gone, like that it's not accessible behind a, a paywall, etc. And obviously, you know, this is not uh, conventional thinking, but this is the reason I I like podcasts. Is like I remember talking to Scott after the WorldCon. It's like, or even before, I was like, what? I've never been to a WorldCon, Scott. What's it? Is it is it about? Is it about the books? Because I, I, that's I don't want to see the costumes and stuff, and I don't want to see this. I, I want I want to hear what cool books there are. And I went to a lot of panels like that, and I noticed like it's a, sort of a lot of introductory material. But even so, it was an introduction to the authors who were talking about that stuff, and that was a good way for me to know like this person sounds like they would write stuff that I'd be interested because of the way they're talking about this other book that they've read. Mm-hmm. So. That that access to the you know the sort of collective wealth is I think like when I went to a Worldcon and I've I'm in a room with a whole bunch of people who've read a lot of books it's different than when I'm walking down the street and I know that the guy standing next to me at the bus stop is not likely to have read a lot of books <laughs> um, it, uh, it's just like if I can say uh, Clifford Cmax's uh, Way Station is a cool book. And the person says, yeah, I really like it. You should try uh, Graveyard Planet <laughs> or whatever. Oh, yeah, that sounds cool. Like just having that ability to uh, get sort of a collective wisdom of people's uh, reading is super valuable. But if it's like if you go and search on YouTube, for example, there is one channel that's doing like archived video of or film of previous things but it tends to be the speeches um rather than the panels mm-hmm. there's almost no panels and so a show like prisoners of gravity which i tweeted about when people were talking about this Worldcon stuff mm-hmm. it was like incredibly valuable i learned to pronounce fritz Leiber by <laughs> seeing him on that show and uh having the host know how to pronounce it right i i recognize kim stanley robinson um, on Escalator when we walked in, and I'm like, holy shit, you're Kim Stanley Robinson. And jump out in front of him and say, your book about uh, Pacific Edge is great. And he's like, what the hell's going on? Why am I being accosted? Well, because you're on that show, you know? Yeah. That's no, I mean, valuable. I, speaking as like someone who has spent time doing research on this stuff, you know, I mean, I, I know that there are like a lot of logistical and practical and maybe, you know, permissions reasons you know, for this, but the, the lack of like a really robust archive of recordings yes. of these panels is really a shame. And, and it, it would be a huge project for someone to do. tremendously evil that it's not available because <laughs> but, you know, it, it's throwing a cultural legacy down the toilet and we yeah. don't have to have that happen. Yeah, because we're talking, I mean, you know, one thing the Hugo ceremony kind of brought up was that, you know, the the, the history of uh, science fiction and fantasy is being written right now. But mm-hmm. a lot of it is not being preserved because you're right. I mean, these conventions, this is an amazing critical mass of people in one place. And you do learn things and, and find out things in these panels that you don't 
have anywhere else, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the oral history of the genre. And, um, you know, for, for my book, I was able to find, you know, real to real recordings of panels that fans made from 1958, you know, I mean, or, you know, like, like, like way back when that had mm-hmm. stories and, and details that weren't available elsewhere. And, um, you know, 50 years from now, someone is going to want to know more about what it was like to be a fan in the year 2020 or 2019. And that information is not going to be as available um, as, as it should be. You know, I, 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 how can you how can you think of all the interactions that are lost in the dealer's room? That was my favorite mm-hmm. part of the convention is just seeing all these these books and magazines that I'd never physically seen because they didn't make it to the local bookstore. And walking around there, you bump into people who are fans themselves and famous writers, um, at least to you, right? And and having that interaction not be not be available. Is, is horrifying, but now just think of those are the uh, unofficial, those are the casual ones mm-hmm. as opposed to the actual official ones. And so, yeah, we can put it behind a firewall and say this is restricted, actually limited uh, a, 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 a scarce object when it actually isn't. It's infinitely reproducible yeah. at almost no cost and it's not being shared widely. Uh, even if it's uh, 10 years after or three years after or a year and a half after, I don't care as long as it's actually available somewhere and downloadable and collectible for archivists who want to make arguments about what it was actually happening in any particular movement. Cause that's, that's the real value, right? Of, of this stuff is, is beyond the immediate experience of getting to meet your, mm. your hero or whoever it is. Um, you, get a, a kind of like a better understanding of what actually happened without those Nixon tapes. We don't know what actually happened as well as we do. And these are publicly available things that a lot of people are interested in. We got to, we got to find a way to make that more in the public consciousness. I, I, I agree. I That's mean, everything looking forward, you know, but I was wondering if looking forward, you know, with this lockdown and I'm sure other you're having this with all these other academic conferences as well. You know, what is the, there is value to the face-to-face uh, meeting. Absolutely. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity here to think about maybe rethinking that. My, my experience with academic conferences is always, the good ones were like the local conferences, the, 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 the regional ones, the, the ones in a really specialized field. The big like American Historical Association conference, I mean, that's been under, some questioning because a lot of the reason people go there is because that's where job interviews are, mm-hmm. right? And that's graduate students. Yeah, that's money. what I heard about Worldcon, right? Well, people meeting with their editors. They're yeah, that's very true. Playing books. And do we even have to have these? I, you know, and there's an environmental cost to be considered, probably in the scheme of things, maybe not huge, but when you add up all these conventions and conferences, it it is significant. Um, you know, if you go to Beijing, you can go to like the Olympic village there and it's like a ghost town from what i heard i think they kind of make a museum or something but that stuff that's all wasted infrastructure that was built up my feeling is there should be one olympic village in athens and that should be it and it should be used every four years Um, (laughs) that has to be face to face i think with academic conferences maybe much we could do those much more virtually and what you lose is that 
face to face. Like you there know, is there be... is something to be said about face to face. I mean, my experience for writing Astounding is that you know when I got the contract, I was like, okay, I got to talk to Silverberg, I got to talk to Benford. You know, there are people who are still around who I don't know who I need to interview. And the the best thing I could think to do was to buy a ticket to Kansas City, to go to WorldCon, mm-hmm. and get into the Heinlein Chili Party. And corner George R. R. Martin and Silverberg and Greg Bayer, you know, because there's no, it'd be very hard for me to have gotten those contacts in any other way. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, Martin blurred my book. And, and the way, the reason that happened is because I, I stalked him. Like I stalked him <laughs> relentlessly for three years at different conventions and, and gave him the book in person. And again, there's like zero chance I would have been able to do that without that personal connection. And I think that's true of um, nonfiction, but absolutely true of fiction writers. I, I think those um, personal contacts count for a lot. Mm-hmm. I do know that on Twitter, there's a lot of talk about any any future bids should, in, Worldcon bids should include plans for a very healthy and vigorous uh, virtual component, mm-hmm. even after. Uh, even after there's a vaccine, hopefully for coronavirus, that it just going forward there there should always be a virtual uh, component to it. a track. Yeah, definitely. And I I would I would attend that way. I you know I'm not like I said I've attended one Worldcon in person. I really liked it, but I'm not likely to to travel to one every year. Um, yeah, it, I go it, to it, a local expensive. one every year that I just yeah. love. Like I said earlier, but. Yeah, it's incredibly expensive. You know, I'm at a point in my life now where my wife and I are trying to go one place a year, and um, I'm not going to be able to talk her into going to Worldcon very often. <laughs> as that place, yeah. I mean, even <laughs> even as a destination, yeah, right. it, 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 it eats up a lot of money. I mean, like you could like have the supporting membership have access to this one track of virtual stuff while attending gets everything and. This way you could bring more people. And I agree with you, Jesse, that we should archive and keep this stuff because, I mean, every so often you see like little bits of film or other things from ancient old world kinds. It feels like archaeology, like, oh, we have 25 seconds of Roger Zelazny getting a Hugo Award. It's like, great, but why can't we have Even more better, you, th- you know, I don't know if you've seen it, Alec. You, you know about Prisoners of Gravity, the show? Uh No. Oh, dude, you got to check oh, it out. Oh, dude. So go, to <laughs> um, okay, go to YouTube, you type in Prisoners of Gravity, it'll come up eventually. And this is uploaded 10 years ago by a friend of mine, who an, a fellow fan. These, This is a Canadian TV Ontario, this is like PBS for Ontario, show that would go to all of the conventions. And they sit down with whoever, whatever author is there, and they ask them, uh, about topics and books and authors. And then later on in the year, they'll edit all those together from all the different conventions together and do it like a virtual topic show, half hour show talking with Robert Silverberg and Harlan Ellison and Neil Gaiman and Connie Willis and everybody was alive, Jack Williamson, and they'll be talking about time travel. And the only way that that is possible is when you get a guy get on an airplane, go to that convention, get a camera, sit him down with an interviewer who says, tell me about the time Harlan Ellison rejected your novel or, or your <laughs> short story. And that gets them, gets them talking. And then they edited it into a, into a show that's entertaining and very for, format based. But the only 
way that show exists is because the conventions were there sort of providing the space, just right. like you, you were saying. And that uh, the, the fact that that show ended is like a huge tragedy because the, the reason, I, like I was saying, I know how to pronounce if you're if you're in a bookstore and you pick up this book by a guy whose name is H E I N L E I N, right? You don't know how to pronounce Zelazny. How do I know how to pronounce that? It's not that easy. I mean, it's maybe easier than some, but it's it's it, the reason well, you get those pronunciations is by hearing somebody say them and recognizing that you know Michael Moorcock. He has a thick accent. I didn't know that. <laughs> this, yeah, no, I remember actually, uh, like, you know, being like, how do I pronounce Van Vogt? And uh, right. looking up like a Harlan Ellison tribute on YouTube. I was like, okay, good. He, Ellison probably is pronouncing it correctly. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I will check out that show. Um, and you're right. Like, this stuff is, is priceless. And, you know, the, the thing that I've learned firsthand is that, you know, to get like that five minutes of footage that sh is useful to you, you know, you need like thousands of hours of this stuff yes. to exist. And, and, and you also need to put in that background all that yeah. time figuring out what kind of questions to ask. You need to have read all that stuff. And then when you get right. in the room with them. Yeah, you have to find you the right all this ore, you know, uh, to get the, the little bit you need. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, and most of it won't be interesting to people. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff that no one will ever listen to. But the only way to get the good stuff is to try to capture all of it or as much of it. You don't know what you're going to you get can. either, right? That's, that's uh, you know, you have an idea of what to ask about, but not, mm -hmm. but not know exactly, like, that's really cool, and uh, that's that's why you know when I we came out of that, Scott, um, that uh, WorldCon, I was like, I like podcasting better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like and every panel is a podcast, right? Yeah, every panel is a podcast. Mm -hmm. There's no introductory material because if people want to look stuff up, they can just pause it, right? You don't have to. I mean, you, the audience participation element is not necessarily a bad thing. How oh, did that man. work in this that case? Was so, this that was so much better. I tell you what, you know, you, you didn't have the person standing up and saying, you know, making huge statements, you know, to the panelists. Right. You know, yeah, like, this is more I'm of a really an expert on this and you guys want to yeah. listen to me and so does everybody right. in the audience. <laughs> that was gone. The, 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 the chat rooms were open, but you could ignore them. Right. Okay. So that's, uh, that, that, uh, that's uh, another benefit. You know, I... I get a bunch of people together, and sure, some of them are really chatty like me, and others are quiet like Evan. <laughs> yeah, as a moderator, it was really great to just be able to skim over the text of submitted questions I, and yeah. pick which ones to answer, which ones to consolidate, uh, and which ones to ignore. It was wonderful having that tool. <laughs> it, it distilled things down because I... You, you moderated how many panels, Trish? I moderated two, and I was on a third. Yeah, I, I moderated one, and I was on a second. And, yeah, having having that Q&A, being able to focus on that really helped, helped me as a moderator to keep uh, things going. And the panel I was on that was moderated by Kat, she was able to take – take the questions and make it a nice discussion and avoid the, the, I have more of a question than a comment, a comment <laughs> than a question sort of yeah. EDC that you have to slap down at every single convention. <laughs> Uh, yeah. The other thing it, it makes me think of is, you know, Twitch is dominated by games. Um, there are other things on there, very strange things often. Um, but I would like to see a lot more of that. I would like to see, you know, so that it has that streaming element. And then you can 
capture it and throw it up. So uh, I don't know why Discord was was that the major format. No, for no, this? Uh, the the panels were all on Zoom, and I actually Zoom. spent very little time in Discord. Discord was part of it. Discord was like where you would go in between panels. Just okay. as if it was like the hotel itself, almost. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. But I, I actually, I, I interacted a little bit with Skyboat Road, um, mm-hmm. who was a dealer. Um, you know, Stephen. Yeah. Radicki how did the and, dealers room work? Um, I, that's why I wanted to spend my time. <laughs> yeah. That that was uh, markedly not as good, right? Oh. I mean, when it, you it, when you go to a dealer's room and it's just glorious, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's like that's why you go to a we have a local comic con. The reason to go to that is the dealer's room because mm-hmm. it's just like Christmas, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, but, uh, it was basically, you know, a list of links where you could go and, and see what mm. they've put out for you. You know, some people had some deals, you know, and Skyboat road, you know, they, you know, like Stefan Runicki was there. Gabriel the cure was there and you could talk to them if you wanted through discord. So, it, it was it that was not the best experience ever. Um, Breaking but, uh, news: I have a notification that mentions where the panels will be archived. It uh-huh. says um, they will be archived with the Toronto Public Library's Merrill collection. Mm. Uh, we hope to get them to the Merrill by the end of September. It will not be a complete set of the recordings due to rights and technical glitches. And we're not sure how they'll be accessed once they are there. But at any rate, that is where to look. Good. So they're they're <laughs> oh, going. Sure. Why aren't they on a torrent? Is my question. See, I mm-hmm. I don't I live in Canada, but I've never been to Toronto. I, I getting there is almost impossible. It may be accessible online after after the uh, collection is yeah, is uh, entered. I yeah. don't know how that's going to work. Um, the right uh, the rights issue can be solved by just you know. Saying it's all open, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 then you got to then everybody who's on a panel would have to sign off on that, and you know there are some people who really would resist that with every fiber of their being. Even mm-hmm. if even I, I know Jesse, we've had the piracy, we had the piracy episode, but yes, yeah, some people would really bristle at that notion. So, well, every panel I was on, I had to consent to be recorded. Yes. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of implied that it's going to be accessible. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Consent to be recorded. What does that exactly mean in legal practice? Consent to be recorded and publicly broadcast or archived? I'm not quite sure about the. the I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what that mm. what that consent actually amounts to in, in full. I would like to mention that there's a whole set of Zealand adjacent panels oh, yeah. Um, yeah. that people in Europe put together to have friendly, you know, European friendly time panels. Um, let's the see, Claire Rousseau, Edra Joy, Alistair Stewart, uh, Cheryl Morgan. Um, Paul Weimer. Uh, yeah, I said, yeah, Paul Weimer. <laughs> I, I sent, right, uh, so I sent uh, Jesse one of those that Paul was on. Yeah. So those were all done on YouTube and they're available to watch immediately. There's like um, uh, three panels a day for the whole of the con and Sunday too. So uh, that's at conzealandfringe.com. And I've watched like four of those and they were all really interesting and they have some stellar people on them talking about stuff. So I highly recommend 
uh, watching those panels too. Yeah. It's not official Con Zealand, but you know, it's it's a whole lot of people worth mm. listening to their opinions about. Well, as as we wrap this up, you know, those of us who went, what was a favorite panel? Trish first. Um, let's see. Uh, well, let's see. Other than the panels that I was on, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um. I had a whole lot of fun playing a game called The Claws of the Crab People, which was everybody was role-playing somebody in a basically a 1950s B-movie. Um, oh, nice. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't know about that one. It was so much fun. Um, mm. uh, let's see. Finlayson. Rob? Oh, I can look up the name. But uh, uh, the guy who ran it was great, and I just had a tremendous amount of fun doing that. Cool. How about you, Paul? I enjoyed Trish's panel on uh, on on fan reviewing reviewing Chrism. I think you did a great job as moderator and wrangling all those cats. I, <laughs> I, I, went, I I went to a number of readings. I I I think I mentioned somewhere that apparently I go to readings now more at these cons, and more, almost more than panels. And I was enjoying readings and copy clutches from authors like Linda Lark and Carl Schrader and. Mm-hmm. That that really was a rich experience to get a a smaller contained one almost not quite one on one but a, a focused on on the author and get to know the author and their work and support their work and that I felt was really valuable especially in this virtual space. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Scott? I, I wrote. Uh, there's a quote from one of the criticism panels. Um, Gary K. Wolf. He said, "I expect likable characters in My Little Pony, not in Hamlet." Yes. I think you tweeted that as well. <laughs> I, I did, and I got yeah. pushed back from Farrah Mendelssohn, Hugo <laughs> finalist. That she, she didn't quite agree with that. It's oh like, man, yeah, because they were talking about how a lot of uh, uh, fanish reviewers, you know, commonly say, "I didn't like the characters, and therefore I don't like this." Therefore, book. it's bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gary, did, Gary was not going to have any of that. Oh, that's funny. So, so one uh, of the best conversations sorry, just I a attended. Quick correction: oh, My what? game master in that game was Ken. Finlayson. Ken Finlayson, cool. Give him proper credit. Yeah. So I went to one called um, The Day After Tomorrow, Near Future SF. So it had uh, Glenn Engelcox, S.B. Divya, Shiv Ramdas, and Carl Schroeder on it. Um, But in that panel, I learned about the voluntary human extinction movement. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever heard of that? (laughs) You can actually, it's in Wikipedia. It's it's someone who is suggesting that we ought to stop reproducing and just let the human race die out for the environment. That's Evan's cat. Is it? <laughs> Rustin Cole. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, walk hand in hand. That kind of stuff goes oblivion. back to the to the population bomb stuff. Oh right? yes, right, right. Yeah. So I, people uh, were talking about. I, uh, well, then it was kind of like choosing to have one kid, but not not as far as. Uh-huh. Uh, it's this new Malthusian uh, right, right. nonsense. Bye. So, yeah, as we were talking about near future SF, um, one of the interesting points that was made in there that I really hadn't uh, thought of is that near future SF tends to be cautionary. It's usually somebody writing about something that, uh, hey, if this goes on, we're doomed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so within a hundred years from now is is what they were defining, and they talked a little bit about science fiction set in the present. Um, things like, uh, alien stories is an example, you know, when an alien, uh, first contact is often set in the Mm. present. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But yeah, I, th- I just thought the the whole thing was uh, interesting. And did somebody somebody wrote, you know, can't you write more positive futures? That was one of the questions asked. <laughs> and there is, <clears throat> you know, that hieroglyph. There's a anthology the project, yeah, yeah, the higher, you know, which is you know Neil Stevenson and others trying to promote some optimistic science fiction. You know, trying to get us a. Uh, a positive view of the future, but the the question asked, you know, was well positive for who? Um, S. B. Divya, um, who's an author I'm really interested in now. She she said that she had sent something to a friend and saying, "Hey, this is really cool," and her friend wrote back and said, "This is horrible." And it, you know, it was like, okay, well, a utopia for me is a dystopia for another person. You know, trying to. Um, you know, so so the, you, the the positivity, quote unquote, the positivity that we were projecting in 1950s science fiction, we're going to colonize the solar system and everything is going to be great. You know, we're all going to have flying cars and everything um, has the negative part of it, too, where, um, you know, positive for whom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. thought that whole discussion was great. And I mean, the whole thing was full of that. I, I went to everything that where there was old timers, I made sure to go. But I also made sure to go to um, a bunch of them with authors that I had never read before. Um, but I saw things like Gary K. Wolf and Joe Haldeman talking for an hour. It was called In nice. Conversation. Uh, they, he asked, uh, Gary K. Wolf asked Joe Haldeman if he keeps up with today's fiction. And Haldeman said, I keep up with the magazines. And for him, the magazines are FSF, Asimov's Analog. So I thought that was interesting. And then yeah, the, there's a lot of online magazines, but yeah, but no, that's not what he's following. Yeah, right? no, yeah. print print is is uh, the old way. Yeah, and it, there aren't those those magazines are hard to get on the shelf. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. find a bookstore first, and then yeah. find the magazine rack, and they're not there. Yeah, not I, here, see, I subscribe it's, to Analog. Um, Alec, hello. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, you're you're in there sometimes. And, well, uh, you know, I mean, I, I got to say, you know, to me, print still means a lot. Yeah, I, me too. I, I always wanted to be in print. And, it, it, and yeah. you know, even though it's these days, it's actually in some ways a, a demerit for trying to get mm-hmm. award attention. Um, you know, I think the online magazines have a big advantage there mm-hmm. and, and as far as like getting readers. But there is something special to me about the idea of being in a physical publication. Yeah, I, I agree I, with you. I, I and prefer it, reading. It is a paper. source of frustration Absolutely. to me a little bit. You know, when I nominate for the Hugos, which I used to do regularly, but I don't so much anymore, pr- probably because, out of frustration because um, I nominate, you know, a lot of the Asimovs and analog stuff, which I feel, as a general rule, there are always exceptions, are still the higher quality, generally, right? Um, but they're not getting, they're not getting uh, to the finalists' um, stories from from the print magazines nowadays. It's rare now. You know, yeah. Because most people are reading. There seems to be a lot, of, a lot more. So that self-publishing thing, it, it is. Remember back in the day, that was like self-publishing? Mm-hmm. You fool. You're getting tricked. Yeah. Now, like, if you're a name author, you should be self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Put oh, your oh, book up on, on Amazon. You're going to sell it, way more it. and get yeah, more it. of that cash. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's the, no mediator. The the, the no ones that are getting waiting. nominated in the short fiction is really Tor.com, Uncanny, I'm looking at it here, Lightspeed, um, 
you know, Strange Horizons. They're just Apex, they're things yeah. that are available for free to read online, really. Mm-hmm. That's just what uh, the voters of the Hugos are reading. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what those awards are, right? Those awards are favorites amongst this group of people. How did the costume contest go? Didn't watch I it. I didn't watch oh, it. No. Masquerade. Uh, uh, they're all on different continents, is my guess, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, well, I think uh, people sent in videos of themselves. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, like, there's there's a number of things that go with the Worldcon dealers' room, you know, conventions, the big ceremonies. Um, there's all the con suites, all that stuff. But the costume contest was one that's you know it's on the same stage as the usually as the uh, thing, and uh, yeah. yeah. I didn't hear they definitely any, had a masquerade. I just there. didn't masquerade, haven't watched it. Yeah, right. And that's that's something that's been right. That I think they had that at the very first Worldcon, right? It was people dressing up as AE, uh, not AE Van Vaught uh, or Van Vogt, <laughs> um, but rather uh, EE Doc Smith characters, right? Lensmans <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's as old as the world. It's old as Worldcon. Yeah, to do mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and you know, if you look, read old Savage Sword of Conan's, uh, they have pictures of people dressing up like Red Sonia and Conan and all the in the seventies, and it's a it's a tradition that I I know has not gone away since you know it's more popular than ever, but I didn't hear a peep about it on Twitter. Which no, which, neither did I. I, I mean, I knew it existed, weird. but yeah, but yeah, it. I mean, I, I mean, it wasn't controversial. Everybody well, thought it was fine. Well, but also, also the lack. Of, I mean, I mean, this whole virtual experience makes that sort of thing much less impactful. I mean, or like, well, like, I mean, it's not a comic con, but like Convergence, which is a comic con like con here in Minneapolis, which of course didn't run this year. People want want run around in costume just just going through the halls and it's amazing and that you can't get mm-hmm. that in a virtual experience through discord. You just, uh, just work. Yeah. You, know, you can maybe see them in a helmet or a Yoda, a baby Yoda costume or whatever on the you, zoom I screen. Loved, I mean, yeah, yeah, but this is not the same as yeah. wandering through the hall. Okay. I get to my next panel. Oh, Oh, is that, is that the Mandalorian I just passed? That's yes, right. it was. Exactly. Yeah. I had a quick question for Alec, I guess. Yeah. He's still there. Um, I'm, I'm still here. He kind of tweeted you or mentioned you in a tweet, mm-hmm. uh, kind of crediting you with the, in some way, I, I, not quite, you know, I'm sure she had her ideas about Brought Campbell before the book, but he, she, she credited he, you. She shouted, she called your name out about the, the Campbell, the name change of the Astounding Award and all that. I was just wondering, because as a writer, when you start out writing a book, you have your intention and your goals, and then there's the outcome of, of you know, what comes from writing that book. So, uh, you know, was that on your mind when you wrote this book, like to kind of dethrone Campbell or, you know, how you feel about all that, I guess? Um, well, I mean, I, I will say I support the name change. I think that was a good idea. Um, and, you know, the answer is going in, I didn't know what... Uh, the book was going to be like because there wasn't a lot about Campbell and this side of Campbell in the available literature uh, of science fiction. I mean, most of what I knew about Campbell, I knew through the memoirs of people who admired him. 
and uh, mm-hmm. like, like like Asimov. And, um, you know, I mean, going to his letters and going through, you know, the primary sources, you know, the, the picture that emerged was not one that I had set out to create. It kind of came out organically from the material. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the book was not, it, it was meant to be a accurate portrait. And I think it is an accurate portrait of, of who these uh, guys were. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I I mean, the, the funny thing is that I have gotten less pushback than Jeanette has, um, even mm-hmm. though I think in some ways I am both Campbell's greatest critic, but also his greatest advocate in a weird way, because I'm trying to make a case for his importance. Um, and I think people recognize that. Um, I also think the fact that um, I look different, you know, than the writers, uh, you know, that I'm, I've written about, you know, has, has some impact on how the book was received. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I've been gratified. I, I think, I think the conversation that the book inspired was exactly the one I wanted. And, you know, the fact that it's still being read and talked about is, is great. Um, I will say this ties into one thing I wanted to kind of sneak in here at the very end, which is like one of my um, hobby horses about the Hugos. And I'm past the point where this can benefit me personally, but I do believe that there needs to be a new category for best nonfiction work um, because the current category is best related work, which has expanded tremendously to include a lot of stuff that uh, doesn't really fit comfortably into any other category. I think we need that kind of category to accommodate, you know, these sort of miscellaneous worthwhile things that deserve to be celebrated. But I think it's going to be very hard for a nonfiction book or or scholarly work of any kind to to win a Hugo in the future, mm-hmm. and and I do think that there is something to be said for an award that you know particularly recognizes those kinds of works because it is valuable and it is important and you know I, I want there to be a place where um, sort of scholars and nonfiction writers you know can actually be recognized. I, I agree entirely. That. Yeah, entirely with you. I mean. Best relay work is way too much of a grab bag, and it I, I would it would have been a shame if that sort of had left out books like yours or book like books like Sparrow's, be just because of just because of the miscellany of what can get into that category. Right. I mean, you know, people said, oh, you know, obviously your book is going to get, you know, to be a finalist. And I said, there's, there's no guarantee. You know, these days it's just very crowded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are only so many slots and a lot of them are being occupied by deserving, you know, candidates. Um, but, you know, I think I know this takes a long time and it's like a year long process to, to add a new category. But it's worth looking at. You know, if we have separate categories for things like podcasts and for, for fan writing, I, I think a nonfiction uh, work category makes a lot of sense. If I go to the if I go to Worldcon 2021, if there is a physical Worldcon in DC, and I go to the business meeting, I'll bring it up. I mean, these things do take time. The gears run slowly for Worldcon by design, but yeah, I I, I think there's a case to be made. Cool. I'm curious, Alec, are you working on anything else in the nonfiction realm? Um, I am. It's sort of science fiction adjacent, um, but I'm working on a biography of uh, Buckminster Fuller. Uh, who is the architectural designer best known for geodesic structures like domes Mm -hmm. he was a futurist a futurist and uh you know definitely like a major figure in terms of shaping the american idea of what the future would be um also a very complicated guy you know probably as complicated or more as campbell um (laughs) so it's a big project um currently taking up all my time um but i'm hoping to have that finished by the end of this year cool Excellent. I recently picked up Syndromes on audio. 
Oh wow! Uh, which is wow. a collection of your stories. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, that, that that's one sale. That, that's that's cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> check that off my list. Um, no, thank Excellent. you. That, that, I, I was going to try to plug that too, but yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. So that's out there. I mean, mm-hmm. one thing I, I try to underline is that I came to science fiction as a writer, as, as a writer of short fiction. Um, I've written for Analog for a long time, and I, I wouldn't have written Astounding if I hadn't been in that magazine and if I didn't really believe in the possibilities of short science fiction. Mm. Absolutely. Cool. We're done. So thank those volunteers. That's what I want to say. <laughs> yes. Thanks to the volunteers and those who mm-hmm. put all the effort and time to run this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. They deserve to mm-hmm. be honored for their efforts. Yeah. Agreed. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.